So Revelation chapter 2. Every time that we handle the word of God, every time that we handle the word of God, the question that we must ask ourselves is this. What does God desire us to know from this text? What is the meaning of this text? And this letter that is the revelation of Jesus Christ is no different than any other part of the Bible in this respect. What is God saying to his church here? What does he desire us to know from this letter? Yes, certainly there are strange things spoken of throughout this letter, things that can draw our attention away from that intended meaning and even the intent of this letter. And our verses from today, this portion of this letter, the part that is concerning this church that was located in Pergamum is no different. We need to understand that city, Pergamum, that city was one of those places. It was one of those cities that take your breath away when you see them. They're just that stunning, just that beautiful. This city wasn't founded on the coast as the first two cities were. It was founded in the province of Asia, built along two tributaries of the Caucasus River. The city itself sat high on a bluff, a thousand, a thousand feet above the river. It was originally a military castle, and it boasted many temples, beautiful temples. It was the first city to have a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. It was also the central place for the worship of Dionysus, the god of healing, and Zeus, the god of weather and law. It was a rich city. It was a beautiful city, and it was a sinful city. And this city had a church within it, one that Christ intimately knew, one that he loved, and one that he had a message for. And he begins this message to this church with this. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, this is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, Revelation 2.12. He begins this letter as he does all the letters to seven churches with a description of himself. And this is the reason that that letter actually matters. He begins all the letters with the phrase drawn from the description given to us in chapter 1. And what is said to the church in Pergamum is important. It was important to them, and it should be important to us. And at the same time, though, there are aspects of this letter, things that are being said here that are intriguing, that can captivate our imagination. What is meant by Satan's throne, where Satan lives? Did Satan actually live there? Who is that guy, Antipas? And why are we given his name? Who were the Nicolaitans? What did they teach? We can allow our minds to get captivated in trying to figure out those things thinking about those things, arguing with people about those things. But the most important thing, the single most important thing that is supposed to captivate and hold our minds and our heart and our attention is that which is told to us in verse 12 and then again in verse 17. 
This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason that this is important is because of the nature of God, the essence of God, and the promises of God. Just like getting Genesis right, getting Genesis 1-1 right, just like that is given to us to keep our minds grounded on the meaning of that book, and even, in fact, the entire Bible, in the beginning, God. The same is true of this letter. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. Revelation 1.1. That's the purpose statement for this book. And we must understand that this is the what, the why, and even the how of everything else that follows in this letter. We must understand why that is important as we travel through this book as we read all these things, all these things have to be filtered through that verse. And we must understand what is written in this book is important, but it's only because this is a revelation of Jesus Christ that this is important. This is the same one who we're told in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head, his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars, and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in its power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Do not fear. That's not just a word of comfort from our king. It's also a command, and it's also a promise. He's already told us what we should fear. Not persecution or poverty or being made a social outcast or pain or even death. We're told not to fear anything that man can do to us. We are only to fear the one who has just placed his hand on the shoulder of his dear friend, his beloved brother and slave, John. We're to fear him. And because this one, the the verses that I just read speak of, because he makes promises to us, as he did in those verses, do not fear. And then he gives us a reason. I have, I have the keys of death and to Hades. And in our verses today from chapter 2, Jesus makes promises to his church there too, to the saints there as well. He ends this letter to the church of Pergamum with, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. And that is a promise. That is a promise of the reality of the eternal security of the believer. 
that is found only in Jesus Christ. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, because we do question ourselves, because we know ourselves, we look within ourselves and we know, I'm not brave. I don't like confrontation. I just desire to live a quiet, peaceful life. We look at ourselves and we know, I can't overcome. And we don't understand. We don't understand the promise given to us by the one who this is a revelation of. And because of the promises of the eternal security of those who do overcome, those that hold fast to the truth of Christ, we need to ask ourselves a question. Does God change his affection? Does his love change? Because at the end of chapter 1, we're told concerning the lampstands that John sees there. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, verse 20. But the imagery of the lampstand as told to us in chapter 1 and then at the beginning of chapter 2, that all harkens back to the commands made to the nation Israel in the book of Exodus to construct the original lampstand for the tabernacle, which all menorahs are, are patterned after. And not only that, not only was that command given to the nation Israel, but it seems from the book of Zechariah that God says that the nation Israel is the lampstand of God. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we read of that prophet being given the vision of seeing the golden lampstand and then being told that, that what the explanation of it is. And here's the answer as to what that is. The angel answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, an Israelite, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. Zerubbabel, he was that Israelite that God appointed to go and rebuild the temple. A promise made to an ethnic Jew. And then in another Old Testament book written to Israelites in Isaiah chapter 42 verses 6 and 7, we're told of God speaking to Israel again. There he says, I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness, I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind's eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who inhabit darkness from prison. Same thing that we're told in Isaiah 40, uh, 49 verse 6, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It, it seems like the affections of God have changed. 
And we struggle to answer the question concerning the love of God towards the nation Israel and the church. How the Old Testament covenants and promises, how they apply to us Christians. And this is why we have a hard time answering those that say that we have replacement theology, replacing Israel and the promises made to Israel with the church. At best, most of us, many of us, all we can ever do when we're told that is say, no, we don't. Or we'll think about that. And we're shaken by that charge, thinking that, you know what? The love of God might change. And if it does, if the love of God can change, and since we do know ourselves, we know that it should change. And we're shaken by this. Because if this is so, then the eternal security that we are meant to have in Christ is kind of shaky. So again, the question must be asked, has God changed his affection? Has he moved it from the nation Israel to the church because the nation Israel didn't keep the promises of God, didn't keep the law of God? Did God change his affection? Well, in Isaiah, we're told of God saying this, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may be shake, may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54.10 And we Christians, we take hold of that promise as ours. But it was made to Israel. So has God changed his affection? Has he cast off those that were once his people and replaced them with us? And this is why we must hold the sola scriptura. Malachi 3.6 tells us, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And you're thinking, well, David... Sounds like he's talking to the nation Israel again. All that were of the ethnicity of Israel. And the religious Jews of the first century, up until modern times, they hold that as truth. They say, this is speaking to us. They say that the love of God is spoken of in the Old Testament is towards them. And this is why they hated the early church. Why they say that we are idolaters for claiming that Jesus is Yahweh. And this is why we must understand how important Jesus really is. Why this revelation of Jesus Christ is so important. This is why we must not allow ourselves to get sidetracked by speculation or bad theology as we journey through this revelation of Jesus Christ. Because we Christians say that the exclusive love of God is told to us in Isaiah 54.10 is ours. And we hold that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is God. And because of that Hebrews 13.8 is just a reiteration. We hold that, that, that Hebrews 13.8 is just nothing more than a reiteration of Malachi 3.6. 
Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we must settle this in our minds. We must get to the bottom of this question, since both the religious Jews and the Christians, they hold that God does not change. And since both of them worship different gods, and by the way, that is a true statement, the religious Jews do not worship the same God as we do. One is an idol. The other is God. And we must get it clear in our heads, in our hearts. Does God change his affections? Or, perhaps, maybe there's more than one plan of salvation out there. One for the church. One for the nation Israel. Well, God addressed that question in the book of Romans. There in chapter 9, after preaching the gospel for eight chapters, condemning all humanity under sin and stating over and again that salvation only comes by grace in faith, founded on the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God then brings up that thorny conundrum of the nation Israel. God, through Paul, addresses this issue and gives us insight as to how we are to understand his love, his unchanging love. Paul begins chapter 9 this way. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies within me with the, in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verses 1 through 4. He, Paul, there acknowledges there seems to be a problem with this new sect called Christianity. It seems to be grasping the promises made to the nation Israel as its own. But then the dividing line between them is stated there at the end. Christ, who is God over all. And then beginning in verse 6, God then gives us the answer to this problem that is only a problem in our minds. He says there, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. God there makes clear ethnicity is not a direct link to his love. And because your daddy was Abraham, that does not make you a child of the promise, Ishmael. This is the same thing that is made clear in Genesis. A point that God, through Paul, makes in the rest of chapter 9. And he ends that chapter and this argument by telling us how any and all are saved. How we become the children of promise. He says, what shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, 
Pursuing a law of righteousness did not attain that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though they were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame, verses 31 through 33. Who's that rock of offense? The stone of stumbling. We're told in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus answered that for me and for us. Grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, we're told of a parable that Jesus tells the religious leaders of that nation, Israel. The parable of the vineyard. A parable that he ends with this. He will come and destroy these vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. And when they, the religious Jews, when they heard this, they said, may it never be. But when Jesus looked at them, he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Verses 16 through 18. The importance, the exclusivity of Jesus the Christ is made here. And we must deal with the reality of the Son. And by the way, those Isaiah verses that I quoted earlier, those from chapter 42 and then from chapter 49, those that before I quoted them, I said they were stated to the true Israel, the you in both of them, you, you know, I am Yahweh, I've called you in righteousness. I will take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. That you, it's capitalized. Deity is speaking to deity. From the Father to the Son. Not spoken to people. Not spoken to an ethnicity. And he, Christ, is why we must always remember that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because he is the chief cornerstone. And the promises made to the church, to his chosen elect, blood-bought, joy that was set before him, people. To those who have been given an ear to hear. We are to know what he says. And we are to know that those things are set in stone. To him who overcomes, to him I will, be, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. We are actually meant to know that. That this is us. And that that promise is set in stone. That those promises, they are written in that chief cornerstone. The one that all that fall on him will be broken to pieces. And being broken to pieces, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It doesn't sound like a blessing. 
that yes, you will be broken to pieces, but your God will then remake you into the image of the chief cornerstone. And we will never be crushed and scattered like dust, which is the promise given to those who will not fall on this chief cornerstone. So yes, the church is the lampstand of God. It has always been the lampstand of God, beginning with the chosen elect men of the covenants of Old Testament were made to, those that have never changed, those that have never been altered. Because he's the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And he has this to say to his slaves. Beginning in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So verse 13 is one of those verses that those left-behind people, they love that verse. They love to talk about this verse. They will wax eloquently about Satan's throne, what is meant by that, what is meant by where Satan dwells, and how that correlates to our day and age. But what we're supposed to understand from this verse is that all worship to all false gods, no matter their origin or what they look like, it doesn't matter if there are Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholics or Jews or Wiccan. It's all satanic. God used Paul to illuminate that truth to us in 1 Corinthians 10. There we're told, he says, what do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which, are gen which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. And this is what is meant by verse 13. There were many false gods worshipped in this city. But primarily, because it was the first city to build a temple in Asia Minor and institute the worship of Caesar as God, who, by the way, took on the title of God the Greek title of Kyrios. All false gods are idols, and idols are not real. They're nothing more than a manifestation of the worship of Satan, and since Satan is not omnipresent, this is why we know that this is where he dwells. But he's not relegated to one city. Sin City is no more sinful than Blair. Satan dwells. His throne is in his people. And this is a summation of what the Bible says of him and of his power and his dominion. It's over his children, his slaves. And we, in our day and age, we don't think that we have these kind of issues to deal with here. There are very few temples around. At least so we think. But we're mistaken if we don't think that false gods or false idols are worshipped as God and there are not sacrifices made to them. By the way, did you hear that statement by that Oklahoma State representative lately? Regina Goodwin, she publicly stated just recently, she said, it's very disturbing to say the least when we have again a state superintendent 
who does not want to have anything to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, Goodwood said in a March 2nd, 2023 meeting. And she went on. She said, DEI is a deity. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is God, she concluded. And there is the throne of Satan. And make no mistake about it, that idol, that false god, this is where Satan is worshipped. And also in verse 13, there's that name of a person given to us. That's unusual in the Bible, especially the New Testament, Testament, and even more so in the book of Revelation. And then nothing more is ever said of Antipas other than he's a faithful witness. But him being mentioned here, between the two mentionings of Satan, that's given to us as a reason, a reason that is explained a bit more in verses 14 and 15. I have a few things against you, that you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the manner that the Lord uses the names of Satan and then Antipas and then warns this church is not only specific in its meaning, but it's also given in this manner to have our minds and theirs drawn back to that person that the Nicolaitans are then compared to, to Balaam. And by the way, he too, like this church, Balaam was warned to repent or the word would find him out as well. Read Numbers, read the account of Balaam and see how God warned that false prophet and then how he used this false prophet to prove who the true church was from those that were not. Because he, Balaam, he told Balak, if you want to render the nation Israel defenseless, if you want to destroy them, your army's not going to be able to do that. He told Balaam, don't try and use force to overcome these people. To render them useless? Just introduce some synchronicity into the worship of the true and living God. All you need to do is get those who are supposed to worship God and have no other gods before him to introduce just a little extra biblical, carnal, provocative worship in with the worship to the true and living God. Because Balaam knew that if anything is added to the worship of God, to the means and the matter in which he commanded that he be worshipped, that idols would then be worshipped and not God. And that's what happened, as told to us in Numbers 25. Is what happens in many, if not most, modern evangelical churches any different than this? Carnal? provocative, emotional. I mean, isn't that the thing that those that worship in those places put so much emphasis on? I felt something. I felt the Lord there. I sensed a feeling. This feeling came over me. It had to be the Spirit. But where is the faith that is spoken of as being the litmus test for the redeemed in Romans 9? And what are we to make of worship when feelings 
are the litmus test for God being there or not. So what were the Nicolaitans teaching? We don't know specifically. But in a nutshell, it's easy to surmise what they were teaching. What they were teaching was a perversion of 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. They took that truth, and because they were unregenerate, because they didn't have ears to hear, they bastardized that text to mean, I have freedom in Christ to do whatever my carnal heart desires to do. Hey, dude, don't you try and lay any condemnation on me just because I'm living with my girlfriend. There is now no condemnation in Christ. Or, yeah, the Lord told me that it's okay for me to divorce my husband because he's gotten fat and sloppy, and I don't really don't have any affection for him anymore. God said it's okay. Or, I no longer need to covenant with the local body. I'm a free agent. God uses me to drop these little golden, golden nuggets of wisdom as I traverse the props or traverse the land. Or, like Billy Graham, who said, there's people out there who are saved, even though they don't believe in the name of Jesus Christ, even though they worship pagan false gods. They're sincere in their worship, and that's enough for God. The church in Ephesus, they said, no way, Jose. But this church, they allowed some of this type of false theology in. They were kind of soft on them. They allowed them to in. And by allowing them in, they didn't understand that they put their seal of approval on what those people believed. And Christ said, I have this against you that they held, they had some who held to this type of teaching. And he warns those that allow that in his church in verse 16. He tells them and us, if that is us, therefore repent. But if not, I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He gives two words, therefore repent. Not, hey, you know, I feel a little comfortable about this. Not, um, I know it's your church, but, you know, I really think you might want to rethink that. Maybe you should really relook at that text again to determine what it means. He gives two words. Therefore. That word points back to what they were allowing in the church of God. And by the way, it is the church of God what infection that they were willing to put up with. And then one word call to action. Repent. Stop it. Recognize this is sin. I just told you that this is sin. And cut it out. Literally. And then, but if not. If you can hear this call to action and then waver because you're soft on sin. Because Man, those folks, they're the big givers in your church. Because you don't want to be seen as unloving or judgmental. What follows after that but if not is this. I am coming quickly. And that's a word picture. 
most of us, we remember what it was like when we had sinned. And our Father came walking towards us with a zeal in his eye and a purpose in his step. And we knew that what was coming with him was not going to be pleasant. That's the word picture here. And what the light is bringing with him as he's walking quickly towards those that are claiming to be of him but are denying him with their actions is frightening. I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And we need to be clear about what is being said here because the, ne- the meaning of that sword of his mouth is revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. They're not fooling God. But all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But why is Antipas mentioned in verse 13? What exactly is he being commended for there? Well, it's written of that man in early church writings that he was a physician in that city, a wealthy, influential man who came to Christ and who then began witnessing for Christ with great effect. And then the physician's guild, the temple priests of Dionysus, that God of healing, they took offense to that, as well as the Roman authorities, to the point that they said, to Antipas after they arrested him, recant. Recant of your atheistic beliefs. And he wouldn't. And none of those people, the Physicians Guild, the religious leaders of Dionysus, or the Roman authorities, none of them had an issue with Antipas worshiping Jesus. They just had an issue with the fact that he worshiped him exclusively. He wouldn't add their false idol worship in with the worship to the true and living God. He said that there is no other God. There is no other name that you must name to be saved. So they placed him alive in a figure made of metal, made to look like a bull, and then they rolled that bull with him inside of it into the middle of a blazing fire. You see, saints, we don't understand the issue that this church and Antipas was facing, the issue that was swirling around this man Antipas. It was the issue of synchronism, of the exclusive worship of God with the medical community at that time. We need to grasp the very difficult situation that these saints were forced to deal with because they had been given ears to hear and eyes to see. Because all medical care at that time, in that place, was all done as an act of worship to a false god named Dionysus. If you went to the doctor because you broke a bone, because of an illness, or because of a disease, you would be treated by a priest of that god and through the worship of that idol that was called Dionysus, but was in reality Satan. And Antipas had been part of that. He had been a priest in that cult. And now he said, no. 
He said there is only one true and living God who is the giver of life, and only he is the great high physician. But luckily, we don't have that to face here. We're not faced with the medical care now being done in the name of a false god, maybe called science. We aren't asked to compromise on the law of God for the sake of science, are we? So what if babies are murdered to make a so-called vaccine? At least I'm safe. But what we know of Antipas from Scripture is that he was considered faithful by the Lord. And he was considered faithful because it was said of him that he was a witness for Christ. And that term there, witness, that's a legal term. Being a witness to the, um, is important to the Lord. How important? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20, verse 16. And according to the Lord, every person is a witness. Every person is a witness to what we believe as truth. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, you bear witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, Matthew 23, 31. Their lives bore witness to what they believed. Same thing that was said of the Baptists in, God, in the Gospel of John, verses 1, 7, and 8. We're told he came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. It was his life, the things that he did that did that. Antipas was a faithful witness to that light, to Christ. And you're thinking, what does a witness do? Well, if you've ever been a witness in a court, or if you've ever even watched a court drama, even to this day, a witness in a court, they are told, raise your right hand as a sign of solemn testimony, and then they're asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's what a faithful witness is. He's the one who tells the truth, the entire truth, and nothing but the truth. And this is what Antipas did. He wouldn't go along with the synchronism of the Nicolaitans. He stood for truth. His life was a witness to what he believed in. And what was his reward for being a faithful witness to Christ? He was murdered. And if we believe extra-biblical writings, he suffered horribly for his witness. In his witness. And we fear. Because we know We know, I don't think I could do that. We fear because we know what is promised to those who persevere, as told to us in the church of Ephesus. We question our salvation. Is this me? Do I actually have ears to hear because of this? Because of the same promise who's made to those who remain steadfast in Smyrna, to those who overcome in Pergamum. Being a faithful witness is what is meant by holding fast to my name in verse 13 of Revelation. And you're like, holding fast to his name? What does that mean? Again, it's a word picture. Think in your head of a man caught in an F5 tornado out in the open next to a mountain. And on that mountain, there is a rope tethered to that mountain. 
And the only thing that's going to keep that man from being blown away is that rope. So he grasps that rope. He hangs on to that rope. He holds fast to that rope. That's what holding fast means. But what, what does this hold, holding fast to this mean? What is that? And how are we supposed to do that? Well, the importance of his name, that's emphasized to us in the, in the law in Leviticus 19.12. We know that his name is his nature. His name is his essence. His name is who he is. I am Yahweh. And we are baptized into his name, as told to us in 1 Corinthians 1.15. We are told in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We're told in Luke 21.17 that we are going to be hated because of his name. And when Ananias was sent by the Lord to open the eyes of Paul, he was rightfully concerned because what he had heard of that man. And God him there tells him, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name, Acts 9.16. So the name of God is important. But how, how do we hold fast to his name? Well, we do just as Antipas did, as the church in Ephesus did, as the church in Smyrna did. We don't add to or subtract from the word of God or the worship of God either. And being a faithful witness of the name of God is important. Listen to verse 17 of Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. And there it is again. That he who has an ear formula, that call to those who, who do have an ear, remain vigilant to others, a call to repentance, and then to the religious loss, another warning of the word standing as a prosecuting attorney against them on the last day. But saints, there are supposed to be comfort found for those who have an ear to hear, for those who have been given a right to become children of God. Because the Lord desires you, desires me. He wants us to know the reality of the comfort that is found in Christ. Listen to your Savior. Hear the one who by his blood has redeemed you of your sin. He tells us in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And when Jesus walked the earth, he made this promise to us. He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And we believe this is truth, do we not, saints? We are meant to understand that what Jesus has just promised us here because we have come to Christ. We have been given the right to become the children of God. But we don't really fully grasp the importance of that promise. And we don't. Because we still hunger. And we still thirst. 
so we don't understand. To understand, to understand scenes, we must move outside of what we know as reality. And we must think, think, think back to that perfect man. Think about that perfect situation in the garden. Think back about that. Are you thinking about that perfect man and about that perfect situation in the garden? Think back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When they walked in the cool of the day with Lord, we are never told of them ever being hungry and thirsty. And we wonder what that must have been like. And we think they were so much better off than we are. And we desire that garden. We desire that relationship, the one that Adam had with God. But the reality is, the reality is that we now, in this realm, now we are better off than they were in their perfect state. And you're thinking, what? How? They walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. But now, now the Lord lives inside of us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself? Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you meet the, fail to meet the test. Saints, our communion with God, our relationship with the creator of the universe is far greater than Adam and Eve ever had. Yes, they were created in his image. So are we. They marred that image in their sin, which is the state that we know that we find ourselves in now. But God dwelt outside of them. They knew him only from the outside. But for us, for the redeemed of God, we are not just reconciled to the God that lived outside of them. Not just made to be in right standing with him once again. Those are both truths. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. But this is important. We are now in Christ. And Christ is now dwelling in us. Our relationship with the Lord, the potential to know God, far exceeds what was possible for Adam. Then why do I feel? Why do I question? Why don't I know? The problem is not in the, our right standing in God. The problem is not in the salvation and the absolute certainty of God. The problem is in us. You see, we do have a part to play in our salvation. God does the saving. Yes, 100% of that. But we, we, we must do repenting. We must do the confessing. We must do the believing. 
He saves, but we must do. And the regenerate heart that he has given us, the spirit living inside of us, must be worked out. How often do we doubt if we are one of those that have been given ears to hear? How often do we doubt, am I going to be one of those that are going to be faithful? I don't know if I'm going to overcome. And we don't know this because we don't pick up our cross and follow him. Not fully. But I will make this promise to you. The more that you do that, in fact, to those who obey with reckless abandon, they understand better what is meant by not hungering or thirsting. Saints, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't given any more of Christ than you are. He just lived with reckless abandon for the one who had given him eyes to see and ears to hear. And yes, we cursed Adam for his sin and the sin that lives inside of us that is all around us and we should. But you need to understand this because it is only because of the sin of Adam, because of our sin. It is only because of that sin that we have been given the greatest gift ever. The curse of the rebellion of Adam. That was the catalyst for the greatest gift of all time. The one who this is a revelation of. The one who has redeemed us from the sin by his blood. Saints, if you can see Jesus as Lord, if you can believe that he is God, if you have a love for his if you have a love for his people, these are all evidences that you have ears to hear. But how am I supposed to know that I'm going to overcome? How am I supposed to know that I'm going to be one of those that are given that white stone with a name on it that only I and he will know? Well, you do that by overcoming today by being faithful today and what you're doing now here by worshiping the true and living God not allowing any synchronicity of any false God in with your love and passion and desire for the true and living God that's overcoming Saints, I want you to hear this. The Lord wants you to absolutely know this. You will overcome. You'll do it today. You will overcome tomorrow. And then one day, when we see him, it is then that we will be like him. And that white stone that he will give to you, you're going to look at that white stone and you're going to put it in your pocket because you're going to be so overwhelmed by that one who gave you that white stone and that new name. Saints, this is our blessed hope. 
This is why we must always remember that we we must always rejoice that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of scary things spoken of here. But read the rest of the book. We will overcome. We will remain steadfast. How do we know that to be true? Because we're in Christ. And Christ is in us. Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Let's pray.